Let me pray. And we'll ask God's help. Father, thank you for our time together. Now. Thank you, God, that you have promised to be at work among us. Thank you that you are among us by your Spirit as your people. Thank you for your words to us. Please give us soft hearts, help our minds to understand. And we pray, God, that you would speak to us now, each individually and corporately. We pray you grow us up into Christ, make us more like him. Um, and we pray, Father, that uh, as these words come to us, we would uh, not just be uh, hearers of the word, but doers as well. So thank you for our time together. And we ask that you would bless us and help me to speak the right words um, to help your people. I pray it in Jesus' name. Okay, let's uh, read that. I'll read it out and you just follow along with your head. Okay, it's uh, chapter 10, starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. That's our text for tonight. And this is a question for you. Will you go to heaven when you die? Will you go to heaven when you die? This is a good question. And one that we should consider seriously. 100% of people, commonly stated statistic, die. And God has told us that we will all stand before him for a day of judgment. 
its reality. Have you been a good person? Have you been good enough? Have you done all that is required of you to go to heaven when you die? This is the question on the table in this short interaction that Jesus has with this law expert. That's the question on the table in this passage tonight. And the exchange, as we've seen, starts out as a test. Right? Look what it says in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Okay. And his testing question is this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice carefully the words. Do. His question is about what one must do. What do I need to do? Also, inherit eternal life. It's about what happens when you die. What do I need to do in order to get to heaven? That's the question. That's the context. That's what's happening. And Jesus quickly turns the test around by asking him a question. Verse 26. What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? Okay. We're working our way in. Jesus directs him to the law of God given to Moses, and this law stood right at the centre, as we know, of the Jewish religious life. Right? So that's a good place to go. That's going to be the answer. So the law expert is up for the challenge of giving the answer, and he says in verse 27, here we go, here's his answer. This is what you need to do to inherit eternal life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. There you go. That's what you do. And Jesus answers in verse 28, you have answered correctly. There you go. From the Lord Jesus himself, from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, that's what you need to do to go to heaven. Look what he says there. Do this and you will live. There you go. Okay. Simple. We see the dynamic, right? You've got the demand of the law. You do the law. You receive the reward. Simple. Okay. Then comes a key turn in the interaction. And this is really important to note. Look at what it says in verse 29. But he, the law expert, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? See that? Notice two things. First, his question has one purpose. Luke clues us in. He wanted to justify himself. Okay, hold on to that word. Being justified in this context is the equivalent of saying that you've kept all the commandments of the law. It's a way of saying, it's a single word way of saying you did everything as you should have done. Okay? So if you get justified, you've done everything that you should have done, and you get eternal life. Therefore, being justified is like a big deal, right? Okay, that's the first thing to notice. 
And notice that that's what he wants. And he justifies, he wants to justify himself. Okay? Second, notice how he goes about doing it. Right? What's his technique? His technique is to limit the law at the horizontal level. Okay? You've got the vertical level, loving God. You've got the horizontal level, loving our neighbour. And so he aims, uh, I know how I'll justify myself, I'll limit the law at the horizontal level when it comes to loving my neighbour. Okay, let's just pause here for a second. Okay, just, just so we know where we are, right? Because we're going to have lots of points. We're going to stay on track. Okay, so this is, we're setting the scene at the moment. Alright, we're going to drill down into these two issues. The issue of justifying ourselves and the issue of limiting the law. So the first, the issue of justifying ourselves. The reason I flag this up and make a pause here is because it may not seem like a very relevant topic to a lot of people, right? You might be thinking to yourself, oh, okay, right, justifying yourself, relationship with God, blah, blah, blah. Seems like a bit of a narrow topic, perhaps for the religiously minded kind of people, right? But this topic of self-justification is universally widespread. I don't know a person, I haven't met them yet, who isn't functionally interested in being justified. How do we see this? How do I know this? Well, we see it in all kinds of ways. One way is that we see it whenever we set forth an argument for someone to show them that how we behaved was appropriate. Okay? Every time we do that, we're aiming at justification. In fact, I guess that we're so bent on being justified we even do it sometimes when people haven't asked. We explain to people who probably don't care how our actions at work today were actually warranted and acceptable. And more than that, we want a verdict. It's not common that someone simply wants to tell another person how they behave the right way just so they feel they've got it off their chest. Is it? No, 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 no. We want a response. We want something back. We want to hear that verdict. Yes, I can see that you were correct to speak, act, think the way you did. You were right. You are justified. Right? That's what we want. That's one way to see it. Another way to see it is in the way we bring others down. Because that's a strategy, isn't it? When, when you bring others lower, that makes you higher. <laughs> In order to make ourselves appear better, we make others appear worse. That helps up the ladder of self-justification. Another way we see it is in the effort to reduce all kinds of judgment. Right? It's key, isn't it? Don't judge. We shouldn't judge. I don't judge anyone. Who are you to judge? Judging isn't. Judging is really the problem. We've got to stop judging. Why judging? Well, one way to stop feeling guilty for our actions and speech is to eliminate all accusations, isn't it? Right? Get rid of the accusations. Ah! No more need to justify myself. Okay? If no one judges, then we've got nothing to answer for, and we can soothe our consciences, convinced that we're righteous. Now, do we see that at all in society? I believe we do. Coupled with this thinking is an attempt to justify everything. That's another kind of similar strategy, isn't it? So you remove all law, 
the method goes, and so does anything else. Or perhaps we tell ourselves that it's just a human construct from a primitive era, and we just need to shape it off. But it's not very practical, and in the end, it just doesn't work, does it? All that happens is the goalposts get shifted. Ironically, I think some of the most free communities can be the most legalistic and condemning environments to be in when you don't toe the line on whatever unspoken law is ruling the people. Do almost whatever you want, but don't you drink out of a plastic straw, I'll tell you right now. Alright? You drink out of a plastic straw, you're out. Okay? Law. Law. And of course, who really wants to live in a lawless land? No one. And so, justification, expectation, accusation, and the need for vindication and justification just don't seem to go away. They're everywhere. It's a relevant issue for everybody. Okay? And the reason is because that longing is a shadow of the real need to be justified before God. And that's why it doesn't matter what we do, we can't get rid of it. It's like trying to hold that beach ball down under the water, it just keeps popping up somewhere. Okay, that's justification, right? Relevant issue. Secondly, the tactic of limiting the law horizontal level. Why would the, would the law experts seek to do that? I think it's because it's the visible angle uh, level, isn't it? It's tangible and it's hard to escape. We see this dynamic in various different ways. For example, uh, reading the Bible. Usually it's like reading the Bible when it comes to things that make us feel a little bit more like perhaps condemned because we haven't done it. I think that's because reading the Bible is tangible, isn't it? We either have done it or we haven't done it. Not like some things where we can kind of convince ourselves that we have done pretty good when we perhaps haven't, perhaps in our thoughts. <clears throat> I think the point here is that we can more easily convince ourselves that we love God, but when it comes to loving our neighbour, the concrete expressions are harder to cover up or calculate for their lack. And that's why the first letter of John is such a critical letter, because he brings these two realities so close together and says that we can spot true brothers and sisters by their love for other people. You see? What you see, that, what you see with the way they treat people is an indication of their relationship to the true God who is love. You see, the horizontal level is more visible, tangible, harder to escape. Okay, so we have to grasp this context, okay? This is the setting of the scene. That's the context. And because the reason why is because this effort of the, of the legal expert in seeking to justify himself on this question of how you inherit eternal life is the key trigger that causes Jesus to tell this parable. <coughs> We have to see that polemical edge to what Jesus is saying. He's saying to the law, the law expert, Ah, I see. You want to play the uh, justify yourself by pulling some 
clever technical move on what loving your neighbour really means game. Okay, let's play that game. And here comes the parable. Okay? So that, that's the scene. <coughs> now let's get into the parable. <coughs> the parable itself focuses on true neighbour love. That's where the parable's going. He's answering that question. And that's where his focus is going to be. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to look at four elements, that, at least, that Jesus um, introduces in the parable that help and highlight what true neighbour love looks like that is the requirement to inherit eternal life in order to be justified and inherit eternal life. <coughs> and then we'll try to pull the things together at the end. <coughs> no, I'm alright. <coughs> <laughs> Same like last week. Peter Lever told me he had to his big coughing section removed. Now I'm gonna have to remove my ramble. Hello, Peter. <laughs> okay, so the parable. In reply, <clears throat> Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Jesus opens up the parable with a certain person. We don't know who this person is, um, and I think that that's significant. It's not meant to be a specific person. It's just a person. They're on their way down from Jerusalem down to Jericho. They're travelling on a dangerous road. They're beaten. They're stripped. Apparently back then, that was, that was one way to identify who the person was. So this highlights the fact that it, the person's kind of unknowable simply by looking at them. They've been stripped naked. They've been beaten and they're lying there half dead. That's the scene. <coughs> this is a person who's in a bad state and needs help. And this sets up the story. This sets up the parable. <coughs> and then the next thing that happens is two important people go by the injured man and neither of them stops. The fact is <coughs> that a priest and a Levite are these two people. And by choosing to select these people, Jesus highlights the fact that role or status and pedigree don't uh, uh, exclude or preclude somebody from loving everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. That's not what counts. Role and pedigree don't count because both the Levite and the priest have exactly these things but they are not the ones who love this bloke. <clears throat> and Jesus is, I think Jesus' point here is, and the reason for bringing these two up, is because he wants to get into the face of that category of people who might think, and I think this can happen to us, that they've reached a certain stage where certain things are now below them. I don't do certain things, that's not for me, perhaps. But the point is, no one ever graduates from the responsibility to love their neighbour. Straight away, Jesus goes straight to the gym just to say, if there's any reason why you might think you might be excluded, let's just cut that now. The Levite and the priest are the two people that he brings in. So true neighbour love is a responsibility for all people, irrespective of role or pedigree. Second, 
Jesus wants to say that true neighbour love is indiscriminate. So, Jesus, that's partly, you've already seen that by the fact that the person's unidentifiable, this person in need, but also the way that Jesus brings in the Samaritan, right? It's no accident that this last man to walk by is a Samaritan. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Because if the law expert had outsiders in mind when he was thinking of who might be, of who might be restricted from the category of neighbour, uh, and then hence his responsibility to love them, then Jesus gets this, uh, he kind of irritates him, I suppose, in a way, by, by bringing the hero of the story as a Samaritan. Contextually, or historically, um, Jews and Samaritans didn't get on well. John 4 teaches us that Jews and Samaritans uh, didn't have dealings with each other during that period, and explains that at least part of the issue was about differences over worship. We see that in John 4. These were religious differences. They were deeply rooted and they were powerful differences. And perhaps it was also the case, and this is probably right, this is what the commentators say, that for a good Jewish person who understood the centrality and significance of Jerusalem, that they would look down on Samaria in general because of the history of idolatry there. Samaria is in the northern part of the Kingdom of Israel and has a long history of idolatry. Uh, and by making a Samaritan the hero of the parable, Jesus is kind of picking the opposite side, he's picking the enemy side, as it were. It's like a Liverpool fan asking Jesus which people he ought to love and Jesus making a Man United fan story. So it's not hard to see how when by doing so Jesus brings the main point about being indiscriminate in who we love into focus because just simply mentioning the name brings up animosity. Right? Just as soon as hearing the name oh the man United fans the hero pricks his heart and drives that point home. Thirdly, Jesus wants to say through this parable that true neighbour love happens at the heart level. True neighbour love, true love that's required of you and required of us is that love is from the heart. Did you notice that that was the key difference between the priest and the Levite on the one hand and the Samaritan on the other? Right? You see it in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. That was, that's the key moment. He took pity on him. And by including this insight into the Samaritan's heart, Jesus is now coming around to highlight another aspect of love and saying, the love I'm talking about is not a love that you can fake. I suspect it's a way of Jesus saying to the, the, the law expert, do you really have a heart of compassion? Do you really actually love people? Are you even interested in loving people? Or are you just asking a question to work out what boxes you need to tick in order to get your reward in heaven? Are you just asking me about who my neighbour is just so that you can 
treat them like units, or do you really actually care about people? Because real male love, the kind that it gets you internal life, the kind that you need, comes from the heart. And fourthly, true neighbor love is thorough, practical, and costly. And Jesus keeps going, I think, because he knows that his, what he wants is he doesn't just simply want tokens of compassion for all people. Right? He wants our love to actually be practical. When no action is required, love is easy. But that's not biblical love. Jesus knows how skillful the human heart is at justification and he knows that it's possible for us to convince ourselves that we love everybody because we think we've had compassion on them. This love may look a mile wide, but it's actually very thin. You see, it's the kind of love that aims at minimum disruption. I love everybody when it suits me. That's not true neighbor love. That's not the true neighbor love that's required of him and us. True neighbor love is compassion that acts. It's practical and it's costly. This guy is in a dangerous place, traveling down a dangerous road. His life is probably in danger helping this guy. And then Jesus really elaborates and drives this point. Look how much time he spends on the Samaritan's love to show what it costs him. First, the Samaritan bandages his wounds and pours on oil and wine. Verse 34. Then, he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn. Presumably meaning that He'll do the walking while the man takes the ride with him. And he doesn't just leave him at the inn and say, cheers mate, I hope someone can look after you now. Got to go. No, he actually takes time. He takes time out to make sure that this guy's going to be alright. So much time, in fact, you can see that in verse 35, it's the next day that he leaves. He's taken a whole day. This bloke has totally disrupted his schedule, his travelling schedule. Right? It's the next day he takes time on this bloke. And then he takes his money out of his own pocket to cover the man's expenses. This injured man costs the Samaritan his time, the danger, and his money as he cares for him. Jesus is saying to the law expert, this is the kind of love that you need to do, you need to exhibit, if you want to inherit eternal life. This is the kind of way you need to love your neighbor if you want to go to heaven. Right? Jesus could have cut out all those details, but he intentionally circles around the Samaritan's love because he wants to get this point home. He wants the law expert to feel it. To weep. In fact, Jesus is so keen on the law expert feeling it that by the time he gets to the end of his parable, he says, not, that's who your neighbour is, but he changes the question. And he says, which of the three people do you think was a neighbour? 
right? The discussion started out, who is my neighbour? Which of the people is my neighbour? Jesus ends the story by going, true love means that you actually become the neighbour. And when you're the neighbour, what's everybody else? Everybody's your neighbour. You are the neighbour. You are neighbour to everybody. So Jesus' point is clear. You want to go to heaven, go and do likewise. Right. So what is Jesus' aim in telling this parable? What's he want from the more, the, the more expert? And this we have to grasp. I do hope that you feel the kind of love is required of you to inherit eternal life. Because Jesus' aim is not simply to give people direction. It's not, he's not aiming just for those who are wondering how best to love people. It's not that kind of person that he's answering. That's not to say that there's no instructional value for us, and we'll come back to that. But his primary aim is to tighten the screws on the person who thinks they will justify themselves and wiggle out of the demands of the law by loosening them in some way. You get that? That's what Jesus is doing with this parable. He's taking the demand of the law and he's opening it up and he's saying, he's driving it home, making it really clear, he's loading up the burden. You're going to self-justify, are you? Okay, let's show you what is required of you. And why is he doing that? He's doing it because he wants to drive the self-justifier to repentance and humility. That's what he's doing If you walk away from tonight and think to yourself, oh my gosh, if I'm to get to heaven, I better up my game in loving people. Then I think you've missed the point of the Bible. The demand of the law is designed to bring repentance. <coughs> the law actually shows our sin. It doesn't fix it. This is Paul's point in Romans 7 when he says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The law, far from fixing our sin, stirred our sin up. And that's critical to grasp. The doorway to being justified is a doorway of humility. And this is the radical thing about the gospel. And perhaps it's best illustrated in Luke chapter 18. So if you flick over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, Luke, Paul, Luke ties together, you see. And so he says one thing one place, but he's got threads and themes running through. So I'll just read this out and you'll get a taste for the kind of response, perhaps, that the law expert should have had. We don't get to see his response, so we don't know what he did. But I think this is probably, probably would have been a good one. It starts at verse 9. It's chapter 18, verse 9. 
to some who were confident of their own righteousness. See that? Confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else because those two, those two things often go together. Jesus told this parable. Okay, so we've got that context. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Tax collector's the bad guy. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. I'm quite good at keeping the law. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus then says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Isn't that amazing? What a turnaround. How is it possible that God can justify the sinner? And how can we be justified? Because that's our issue. We want to go to heaven. We want eternal life. How do we get justified? And how does God justify the sinner? The, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus' point there is simply to illustrate, I think, the need for humility and repentance. And he's not necessarily unpacking how it's going to be possible for Jesus, for God to justify the sinner. For the concrete expression of the mercy of God, we need to look at the life of Jesus. And this is where we see how it is for the law expert and ourselves to be justified before God and thereby inherit eternal life. We can be justified because of the way that Jesus loved us. There's a clue. Okay, so let's just quickly look at how Jesus loved us. And it's interesting, quite amazing actually, how much it maps onto the love we've seen in the parable. We can be justified because Jesus has loved us. The first thing was that Jesus' love toward us was undeserved. We didn't get out, he, sorry, he didn't get us into our mess. We got ourselves into our own mess. But he came to help us. It was undeserved. Secondly, Jesus' pedigree didn't stop him. Jesus was in heaven, in the glory of his Father. If anybody was justified in not, it was him. But he didn't. He came down for us. Not only so, but it was across enemy lines. It wasn't just these religious and cultural differences 
actually came across enemy lines. He didn't come for friends, he came for enemies. He didn't come for people who already loved him. He came for people who, given the chance, crucified him. He came for enemies. And his love wasn't cold and mechanical. I'm amazed by this. Can you believe that Jesus has compassion on you? When you're feeling weak, sinful, Jesus has compassion on you. He wept over, over Jerusalem. His heart was moved with compassion at the crowds. He laboured night and day in his ministry and he sees the crowds and he has compassion on the crowds. He has compassion on you. And lastly, it was thorough and costly. The way Jesus loved us didn't get us part of the way home. He covered all our mess. And it cost him his very life to do it. And don't think that the death of Jesus on the cross is like some children's story. Right? Wandering up the hill with a smile on his face. Think of a bloke wearing such a weight of darkness that he's sweating drops of blood from his head. Jesus is fully man, right? He's not like an X-Man who's kind of not quite like normal man. He's like fully man. And when they strapped him to that pole and lashed his back with a leather whip that was studded with bits of bone and metal, he felt the shock of pain run through his body like you or I would. His body would have trembled in the moments between the blows as the anticipation of another lash tearing across his back lingered in the air. It cost Jesus to bear that cross up that hill. It cost Jesus to feel those nails driven through his hands, sending piercing pain up his arms. It cost Jesus to hear that mocking as he hung, gasping for breath. He fights for breath. He fights for me. Loosing sinners from the pangs of hell. That's right. It was costly love. But lastly, his love fulfills the law and inherits eternal life. In loving us like this, he fulfilled all the requirements of loving God and loving neighbour, and he earns the right to eternal life. There's only one person who was entitled to justify themselves, and ironically, he was the only person who did it. He's the only person that deserves to inherit eternal life. But he actually makes this available to us. And that's the remarkable thing about the gospel. It's tempting just to see the message of Jesus just like all the other messages. And we've just been inspired by a wonderful picture of what love looks like and all go out cheering ourselves on, hoping to be better. But the remarkable thing about the message of Jesus is that actually we don't do that when we're honest with ourselves. 
And Jesus loads up the law in this parable to get it right in the face of the person who wants to justify themselves and tell themselves, I've done all that's required so that I ought to inherit eternal life. And so what Jesus does is he wins eternal life and then he offers himself to us for free. And says, receive me and receive all of my benefits. I'm entitled to eternal life. I did it perfectly. Receive me and all that's mine becomes yours. And all your sin has become one. That's the gift of Jesus. So what must we do to inherit eternal life? Well, as sinners, we need to repent, humble ourselves, and receive Jesus. And then a final thing to say is this. Does that mean we're supposed to forget about the parable of the Good Samaritan because the law has done its work of driving us to seek mercy? This parable of the Samaritan is still a good example of what true love for neighbour looks like and to this example we should strive. But not before Jesus has become the Samaritan for us and we seek this example not for eternal life but from 